Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, Today, we come to our last sermon in our series, looking at the prophets Elijah and Elisha from 1 and 2 Kings. And we have been following the prophets as they have worked to make God known to the people of Israel in a confusing and dangerous period in their history. And today we're going to be looking at 2 Kings 6, 8 uh, through 23. It's a somewhat longer passage, but I encourage you to uh, read along as uh, I read. It's uh, printed in your order of worship. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took the counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I might send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servants said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike the people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk... He sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that in this moment you would open our eyes, that we may see the one who is tirelessly working on our behalf in the unseen reality for our good and our redemption. Father, show us that we are not alone this morning, and may you fill us up as we feast on your word, and may we be encouraged 
and changed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a while back, um, sorry about that, guys. A while back, we had a situation at our house where uh, the water in our tub would not drain. So we did what non-handy people do. We went out and we bought two uh, bottles of Drano and we poured both of them down the drain. It didn't work. So we went out again and bought maximum strength Drano, the pro version, and we poured that down the drain and that didn't work either. So we had no choice but to call a professional. So we called a plumber and he comes out and he starts crawling under our sink And pretty soon, he starts cursing under his breath. And he tells us that we have a way bigger problem than a clogged drain. We have a clogged 100-year-old P-trap that is deteriorating. And by the time he finishes in the basement, uh, hours later, he props up a 2x4 at an angle. And uh, and it holds up the ancient P-trap that he just jimmy-rigged. And he tells us, with a straight face, do not mess with any of the pipes. Do not disturb the two-by-four, because that could mean that all the plumbing in the bathroom would need to be replaced. And by the way, he is booked for the foreseeable future. And then he takes the check that we wrote and pretty much runs off the property. Now, in retrospect, our attempt to solve this serious plumbing problem by hitting it again and again with Drano seems pretty silly. But I think it reflects our very poor understanding of the scope of the problem that we were dealing with. Now, if I can make the jump, our passage begins with a story about the king of Syria taking a Drano-level approach to an encounter with the living God. He is a man used to getting his way, and he's kind of a one-trick pony. If you get in his way, he will end you. But when he comes up against the living God, he's going to find that he's encountering a problem that is way out of his league. So the context of our story is that Syria is at war with Israel. The Syrian army's tactic was to continually raid Israel's towns and villages, looting and killing and enslaving God's people. But even though Israel at this time had a series of bad kings who weren't faithful to God, God continues to remain faithful to his people and shows him, them, how much he cares about them. God empowers his prophet Elisha as the world's most effective one-man intelligence agency. So time and time again, when, when Syria makes a move, Elisha shares it with the king of Israel so that they are one step ahead of the Assyrians eluding their ambushes and thwarting their strategy. No, naturally, Syria's king finds this incredibly frustrating. And he figures that it's someone in his inner circle who is supplying military leaks to Israel. So he calls his officers together and accuses them, who is the mole? Who is the traitor among us? And that's apparently when they first think to tell the king something that seems to be common knowledge amongst his soldiers. It's Elisha, the prophet. He tells the king the very words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Now you might think that this would give the king of Syria pause. 
to hear that Israel's God is actively working to undermine his plans. But you see, the gods of Syria were idols that could not see or hear. And they were depicted as too busy with their own wars to spare much thought for what actually happened to humans. So the king has no reference point for an omniscient, all-powerful God who actually cares about what happens to people. And so he falls back on his same old tool that he's accustomed to using. Let's get rid of the prophet. Problem solved. And he tells his officers, go and find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. So the report comes back to the king. Elisha is in Dothan, which is his hometown. Now, the king of Syria isn't dumb. But right away, we see how absurd it is that he is going to try to sneak up on the guy who is privy to all of his plans as if this time will be any different. And yet, don't we all do this from time to time? Despite the evidence that our way of dealing with relationships, conflict, and stress aren't working for us, we double down on doing the same thing. And I think it's often unconscious and often has to do with the fear of what will happen if we try to do something different, if we step out into the unknown. So Syria's king sends a great army with horses and chariots to surround Dothan during the night. And Elisha's apprentice wakes up to this startling sight. Terrifying. He knows that if Syria is here, they are here to annihilate the whole city. And so he runs back to Elisha and says, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? Now I think it's remarkable that in this crisis situation, before Elisha does anything else, he pauses to attend to this young man. He tells him, don't be afraid, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Now Israel's army is 10 miles away and there is no help on the horizon. And the apprentice has to be thinking, Either I am bad at math or Elisha has gone crazy. And I'm sure Elisha, Elisha could see his face because Elisha prays, Oh Lord, open, please open his eyes so that he can see. And as we read, the Lord opens this young man's eyes and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. I mean... This is an incredible sight. This is an incredible moment. It reminds me of the scene in The Lord of the Rings when the armies of men are surrounded in Helm's Deep and the armies of Mordor have breached the wall and all hope is lost. They have accepted that this is the end. And then... Gandalf appears on the horizon with a great army behind him. And just like that, the tides have turned. 
Tolkien calls this the eucatastrophe, the sudden and almost unimaginably joyful turn of events. But unlike the Lord of the Rings, in our story, the great army is hidden. It is veiled, and yet it is no less powerful for being unseen. These are the Lord's legions, and this is a view behind the curtain to the spiritual reality, the hidden dimension. And as Elisha looks out on the battlefield and he calculates his odds, he truly does a different kind of math than anyone else. He looks out and he feels confident. There is no contest between the armies of earth and the armies of heaven. It's important to Elisha in this moment that his apprentice comprehend the true reality as he does. And I think his prayer is crucial, not just for the apprentice, but for you and me as well. We need our eyes to be open to see the ways that we need to be rescued. And we need to know that there is someone powerful who actually is going to show up and turn our fear into hope. And what the apprentice sees reassures us that when we feel the assault of brokenness and darkness and decay, the Lord is actually engaged powerfully on our behalf in ways that we can only begin to imagine. Whether we're walking through the heartbreak of a relational breakdown, or we wait for medical test results, We're finding ourselves stuck in a period of deep depression. Church, it is is all right to ask God to show us some glimpse of the reality of Elisha's words in verse 16. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now this story could have ended here. The angelic armies could have gone ahead and defeated the Assyrians, and Dawson and Elisha would have been saved. And if that was the case, this story would have likely ended up in the Jesus Storybook Bible. But another thing that we have seen in First and Second Kings is that the real God rarely behaves how we would expect. His plans are always bigger, always much more expansive. Rather than defeat the Syrian army, God leads Elisha to pray again, Lord, make these people blind. And so God struck the army with a kind of blindness. Now, it's likely that this wasn't simply, simply physical blindness. I mean, think about it for a second. Can you, can you imagine what would have happened if the whole army suddenly lost their actual sight? It would have been a bloodbath. It would have been total chaos. Everyone panicking and running and slashing and stabbing. But what we see here is that these soldiers are remarkably well behaved when Elijah comes down and he says to them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. 
And without questioning, they allow him to lead them away from the only dolphin on the map by the very man they have come to capture. And so commentators tend to agree that the soldiers were struck with some sort of mental befuddlement or confusion. And so this now docile army turns away from Dothan and follows Elisha on a 10-mile jaunt to the city of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And now, it's the Syrian army who are surrounded by their enemies. And Elisha prays one last time, saying, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And they are brought to their right senses and discover to their horror that they are now the ones who are doomed. The siege of Dothan has been reversed. And the best hope for the Assyrian army now is a speedy, quick death, if they're lucky. And man, in this moment, you can see the eagerness of the king of Israel. He has been handed this victory. And he looks at Elisha as if he was a, candy, a kid in the candy store. Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And I think what we see in this moment is that Israel's king isn't morally different than the king of Syria. He just wants to survive and he thinks that the best tool to do it is to eliminate whoever is in front of him. Whoever gets in his way. But Elisha says... No, do not kill them. Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? In other words, Elisha says, you weren't the ones who captured them. The Lord captured them. And let me show you what happens when the Lord captures you. From the world's point of view, the only way to end this war is to slaughter your enemy. But then the Lord unveils his way. It is to change their enemies. And so the king prepared a a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. And they returned to their master. And so therefore the bands of Syria stopped raiding Israel's territory. To say that this turn of events is shocking is an understatement. I mean, this this had to be just as baffling to the Syrian army as it was to Israel. Who, Who lets the enemy go to fight them another day? It seems utterly foolish. And in some ways it is. But there was a spiritual power at work that day, the full force of the kingdom of light. And God showed the Syrian army that they were dead men. And then he gives their lives back to them. And so these these soldiers, having been feasted like brothers, left and never came back. And in this particular moment, at the banquet feast, we we see a wild unimaginable reversal. It is God's people's enemies who are offered the comfort of Psalm 23. 
Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Church, God had all of these chariots of fire at his disposal, yet he conquered Israel's enemies with food and drink. By feasting them. This reminds me of St. Paul's words in Romans 12. He says, if, you, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is amazing that it is possible that we can overcome evil with good. And that God gives us a role. And how do we do that? According to St. Paul, we literally feast our enemies if that is what they need. Like give them food and drink. And I think at the very least, they need kindness. Like all humans need kindness. They need honor and respect like all humans were created for. And if we, if the very people they don't honor and respect offer them that, Jesus says, that might crack open their world just a bit and open them up to his invitation. And it's in living like this that Jesus invites us to join him in putting our heel on the neck of evil. But you and I know that living like this isn't normal. It, it defies the economy of our fallen world, and it is costly and often dangerous. Because the thing that prevents us from loving is feeling that it, like it leaves us with a deficit. Like we have less because we have given love and care away without having anything given back to us in return. But there is only, there's actually only one kind of accounting that makes this possible. And more than makes it possible, makes it a beautiful and coherent way to live in this world. It is when you and I start from a place of knowing that Jesus willingly told the Lord's legions to stand down. And he allowed evil to assault him so that it would not have its way with us. Jesus laid down his life for the good guys who hide their brokenness really well. And he laid down his life for the bad guys who show everyone their mess. And now, the resurrected life, he lives, we get to join in so that we get to start with the full bank account, utterly loved, fully approved of, abundantly provided for. And God planned this for us long before we cared about him, while we were his enemies. And only when we start from here, God first loving us, can we extend love to those who don't love us, who mean harm for us. It is only in response to being so loved that we become people of salt and light, people who live with the possibility of responding to another's curse with blessing. 
with a prayer for that person's good and flourishing with a feast in our back pocket of giving joyfully to those who may not do the same for us, of having imagination big enough to allow the possibility of even the hardest people in our lives being transformed by Jesus' hospitality. This then is how we know that we have met the King, the living God. The unexpectedness of His grace captures us and changes us by it. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, this is, this is the greatest news that we have ever heard. And Father, we need to feast on this news, and we need to metabolize it. And so may you answer Elisha's prayer and give those of us who desperately need it this morning sight to see the unseen reality of the kingdom of light who are powerfully battling for our good and our flourishing, who have not left us alone. And God, every one of us knows that we are people who love those who love us back, but you call us to love our enemy. And as we feast in a few moments at this table, remind us that you are the king who transforms enemies into allies, into brothers and sisters that you call family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.